0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter-Naslin, Karen Mann, Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. Today, guest host Linnell Edwards is with us. Linnell is the associate program director and poetry faculty member at Spalding University's Naslin Mann graduate program in writing. Her latest book of poetry is This Great Green Valley, a chapbook of documentary poetry based on revisionist narratives of Kentucky's pioneer founding in the 18th century. Three additional full-length poetry collections, Covet, The High Woman's Wife, and The Farmer's Daughter, were published by Red Hen Press. A chapbook from Accents Publishing, Kings of the Rock and Roll Hot Shop, chronicles the work and art of a glass-blowing studio. Her short fiction, book reviews and essays, have appeared in another Chicago magazine, New Madrid, Connecticut Review, among others.
1: I'm Linnell Edwards, poetry faculty and associate program director for the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, and I'm talking with writer Lesliea Newman. She is the author of 80 books for readers of all ages, including the novel in verse October Morning, a song from Matthew Shepard, and the children's classic, Heather Has Two Mommies. Her awards include the Matthew Shepard Foundation Making a Difference Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Fellowship, two Stonewall Honors, two National Jewish Book Awards, and a Massachusetts Book Award. Newman faculty in writing for children and young adults at the Sina Jeter Naslin Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. She lives in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Her most recent book about which I'll be talking with her today is Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard, a long illustrated poem with a foreword by Jason Collins, who in 2014 became the first out NBA basketball player in the league and gorgeous light filled illustrations by artist Brian Brittigan. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast, Leslie.
2: I'm so happy to be here.
1: It's great to be talking with you. Always Matt was released in September this year and marks the 25th anniversary of 21-year-old college student Matthew Shepard's murder in Laramie, Wyoming in October, 1998. For those who don't know this event, briefly, Matthew Shepard, an openly out student at the University of Wyoming, was lured by two young men at a bar who, instead of giving him the promised ride home, took him to the isolated surrounding high desert, robbed him, brutally beat him, roped him to a fence, and left him to die because he was gay. Though discovered 18 hours later by a mountain biker and taken to the hospital, Matthew ultimately succumbed to his wounds. October Morning, her 2012 novel in verse, imagined that night and the long aftermath of witness, grieving, and justice. Leslie, talk a little bit about your vision of Always Mad on this 25th anniversary of Matthew Shepard's murder.
2: So I just want to say that it's also the 25th anniversary of the creation of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which uh, Matt's parents. Established only two months after he died. They established it on his birthday, December 1st. So the book is really to commemorate both of those things. And what I did with October Morning was I really explored the impact of Matt's murder upon the world. And what I wanted to do with Always Matt is pay tribute to him, talk more about his life rather than his death, and talk about the people who carried on his. Legacy and still do so to try and make the world a better place, which is what he wanted to do. Yeah,
1: and in many ways, it's it is a lot of uplifting uh, insight um, in the collection in the book. Um, October morning, as you say, documents the voices, the events, even the weather to recreate for readers, a vivid and unblinking experience of Matthew's torture and the complicated and sometimes ugly process of bringing his murderers to justice. It's clear you spent careful hours researching the places and the facts for the event in that book. What more research and reflecting did you find you needed to do to tell this story of 25 years later?
2: Well, the first research was to just look deep inside myself and see what I remembered and what I was feeling. And then I reread Judy Shepard's memoir, which is excellent and I highly recommend to everybody. And I also watched Michelle Houseway's film, Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. And those two things really talk a lot about his life and who he was. And I know it's very important to both the Shepherd family and to his friend, Michelle, and to me, though I never met him tragically because he died the morning that I arrived in Wyoming as the keynote speaker for their Gay Awareness Week. But it's important to realize that he was a person uh, before he was a headline, and he was a young man with uh, a family who loved him, with friends, with dreams, with hopes, and so, That's what I really wanted to capture. And so I wanted to read work uh, created by people who knew him. Right,
1: and there were several important things. Um, What did you learn new in this research um, of his life this long after the event? What were you seeing that that you hadn't seen before?
2: No, I'm not really sure, because my if I learned anything new, per se, because my research for October morning was so thorough, but it was more steeping myself back into his story and really thinking more about his life rather than his death. I see.
1: Um, in your preface to Always Matt, you state that you want to, to tell this story in poetry. You're a writer in many genres. What about poetry seemed right for Always Matt?
2: Well, I am first and foremost a poet, and poetry informs everything that I do. And it's my first love. And I wrote October Morning in Poetry, as you know. Um, And for Always Matt, it felt like poetry gave an opportunity for the page to contain a lot of empty space. And Matt left a tremendous empty space in the world. And so I thought that the form and the content was a really good marriage.
1: Yeah, um, anything more you wanna say about the the
2: poetic structure of the book particularly? Well, it's one poem as opposed to October Morning, which, uh, I mean, I actually think of October Morning as one long poem, but really it's 68 individual poems. Always Matt is definitely one long poem. Uh, And it's told in um, Tercets, three line stanzas. And so some of the pages have Uh, The double spreads have one tercet. Some have two spread across. Um, But it's just as I was writing, for me, I don't really plan or outline. And the content really dictated the form. And it just, you know, I've put in my 10,000 or 100,000 hours, whatever it is, of poetry writing. I've been writing poetry since I was eight years old. And so I really trust and rely on my intuition to figure out the form.
1: I see. Um, as writers, we revise a lot. Did you find yourself doing much revision of the initial outpouring of the story? It certainly has that movement uh, of a continuous poem and a compelling narrative that you hold through the entirety. What uh, kinds of revision moves did you find yourself making, and or did that tercet form present itself
2: immediately? Well, I revised, I don't know, 20, 30 times, I lost count. I have so many files on my computer, final version. No, really final version. No, this is it, the final version. And so, you know, I I just started off by writing um, in prose to see what I had to say. And then I realized pretty quickly and with the help of some readers that really poetry was the way to tell the story. I tried different points of view. There were just all kinds of changes, like all my work. You know, everything I write goes through at least 20 drafts until I I describe it as when I know that something is flowing correctly or in the best possible way, I literally breathe differently. Like I just have this bodily response when I know that the work is where it needs to be. So I wait for that. And that's what happened here. And I, you know, and you get that, you know, the, the aha moment that us poets live for, aha, I've got it, this is it, it's working. Exactly, you get that moment, this is clicking.
1: I'm fascinated that you say you initially wrote it in prose. Is that a usual practice for you with your poetry?
2: No, in fact, it's not. So the 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 germination of this book was actually um, Jason Marsden, who was at one time the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, asked me after October Morning was published to write a book for younger kids about Matt, like a picture book, because we all know that bullying can start very young right? And teaching about kindness also can and should start at a very young age. And so that's what I was setting out to do. And that was very challenging, because how do you tell the story to really young readers? And so I sent this actually to my editor with the idea of it being a picture book. And he loved the text, but said, no, 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 this is not a picture book. He calls it a family book, which is a term I was not familiar with. Um, meaning that families would sit down and read this together and hopefully that would lead to discussion and also schools, of course.
1: Sure. That's that's really interesting. But now we've talked a whole lot about the book and and your work. And so I would love to have you read some for our listeners. Um, And I think you're going to read both from October Morning and Always Mad and maybe set that up with a little conversation about how these books are talking to one another and are in some ways continuous. So I'll let you take it here for a few minutes.
2: So I'm going to start with a few poems from October Morning, which is written from a myriad of points of view. And the book starts with the fence that Matt was tied to talking. The fence became a really um, iconic symbol of this whole tragedy. And so this whole book really started with a question, which is what happened at the fence and there were no witnesses per se. And obviously Matt can't tell us what happened because he was killed. His assailants, I don't believe what they say and their stories contradict each other. So I kept thinking what happened for those 15 minutes that changed so many lives. And then I had that aha moment and I thought, well, there were witnesses, right? The fence was there, the moon was there, uh, the truck was there, animals were there. And so I decided to write in some of those voices to see what I could learn. So, there is actually a suite of poems from the fence's point of view. So, that is what I'm going to start with. It's up in four parts. The fence before. Out and alone on the endless empty prairie, the moon bathes me, the stars bless me, the sun warms me, the wind soothes me. Still, still, still. I wonder, will I always be out here exposed and alone? Will I ever know why I was put on this earth? Will somebody someday stumble upon me? Will anyone remember me after I'm gone? The Fence That Night. I held him all night long. He was heavy as a broken heart. Tears fell from his unblinking eyes. He was dead weight, yet he kept breathing. He was heavy as a broken heart. His own heart wouldn't stop beating. He was dead weight, yet he kept breathing. His face streaked with moonlight and blood. His own heart wouldn't stop beating. The cold wind wouldn't stop blowing. His face streaked with moonlight and blood. I tightened my grip and held on. The cold wind wouldn't stop blowing. We were out on the prairie alone. I tightened my grip and held on. I saw what was done to this child. We were out on the prairie alone. Their truck was the last thing he saw. I saw what was done to this child. I cradled him just like a mother. Their truck was the last thing he saw. Tears fell from his unblinking eyes. I cradled him just like a mother. I held him all night long. The Fence, One Week Later. I keep still, I stand firm, I hold my ground while they lay down, flowers and photos, prayers and poems, crystals and candles, sticks and stones. They come in herds, they stand and stare, they sit and sigh, they crouch and cry. Some of them touch me in unexpected ways without asking permission and then move on. But I don't mind being a shrine is better than being the scene of the crime. Defense After. Prayed upon, frowned upon, revered, feared, adored, abhorred, despised, idolized, splintered, scarred, weathered, worn, broken down, broken up, ripped apart, ripped away, gone, but not forgotten. So that was from October morning and now I'm going to read Always Matt. And I I just want to say something about the title So originally I had always mapped the story of Matthew Shepard and my brilliant editor decided to change or asked me if we could change the subtitle to Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. And just changing that one word really changed everything in my mind about what this book is, what this book is trying to do, how this book is really an homage. So I'll just read the beginning. And I have to say the artwork is absolutely gorgeous. And so um, it's, it's really a conversation between the written text and the visual storytelling. So of course your listeners won't get the full effect of that. Um, but I will just read a bit of this. He was a grandson, a son, and a brother. To the world, he was Matthew Shepard. To his family, he was always Matt. Matt was born with muddy blue eyes and blonde peach fuzz hair on a windy Wyoming December day. He loved cuddling his stuffed rabbit Oscar and reading Where the Wild Things Are and singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. He loved wearing his dad's cowboy hats and his mom's curlers and dressing up as Dolly Parton for Halloween. He loved leaving poems and drawings and pretty rocks in the mailboxes of his neighbors. He loved hiking and fishing and horseback riding and gazing through his telescope at the sparkling stars in the wide Wyoming sky. He loved listening to people tell stories about their lives. He heard happy stories and sad stories. He listened very carefully. He promised to make the world a better place, a kinder place, a peaceful place, for everyone.
1: Thank you so much. Um, Just to geek out a little bit about poetry now, um, in October morning, obviously, one of the things that holds the collection together are those voices and how they appear, as you point out, with the fences, as a kind of suite that threads through the collection. And there are other voices as well, the sky, um, the stars. And also the poems in that you read, The Fence, have a kind of uh, regularity in their form as well. You know, not to stretch too far, they look like a fence, but there are couplets. Um, In the second poem, we have that repetitive form of the pantoum. We hear lots of sound um, and a lot of the other kind of patterning that we expect out of poetry um, that's also in sync with again, I think the notion of offense, very regular and solid and um, in some ways predictable, even as the language inside the form is unpredictable. Um, I'm hearing in Always Matt some of those poetic things as well. For instance, uh, the repetition of um, Wide Wyoming Sky, Windy Wyoming Day there in the first pages you read. Can you say a little bit more about some of the poetic structuring that's happening to hold this long poem together? You mentioned Tersets earlier.
2: So I always focus on sound. Um, sometimes I actually choose sound over meaning for words. So yes, I definitely was working with alliteration, the wide Wyoming sky, which you know, you, you can't really say those words quickly. And so those words just mirror the wideness of that sky. So those are the kinds of things that I think about when, when I write poetry. Um, and then um, when I talk about Matt's killers, I'd say their hearts were hard. And then later on in the book, I talk about wanting to soften people's hearts. So uh, working with opposites there. So there's all kinds of things in here um, that are obviously deliberately done um, to keep um, um, a deer curled up close by again with the kept him company curled up close by, again, using a, a lot of alliteration in the book. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is use poetic technique, but have that technique recede so that what really stands out is the content.
1: One, yes, wonderful. Um, so we're going to take a brief pause uh, to hear from our underwriter, the Spalding University, Cena Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann, Graduate School of Writing, and then we'll return with some more poetry from Leslie and Newman.
0: Spaulding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing prepares students to publish, produce, and find professional success alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film, and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spaulding.edu mfa or email school of writing at spaulding.edu.
1: Welcome back. I'm Linnell Edwards and I'm talking with writer, Leslie Ann Newman. Uh, before the break, you've been reading some parallel sections from your novel in verse October Morning and your new long illustrated poem, Always Mad. Maybe you could continue reading with some additional excerpts and talk to us about those.
2: So what I'd like to do is read the last poem in October Morning. So, You know, when I I finished the book, or thought I had finished the book, because one never (laughs) is finished with a book when one thinks one is finished with the book, um, it was left in kind of a sad place. And I didn't want to leave the reader, especially young readers, with the last poem from the fence's point of view, which is about the fence being torn down. So I actually went back to Wyoming. Um, I've been there, uh, several times and I thought I, I have to go back and find my last poem. And I actually was asked a friend to take me to the site where Matt was murdered to, and I call this poem pilgrimage and it is about us going there and it's really a prayer. And I thought that was, would be a, I don't know, soothing, comforting, peaceful way to end the book because it's, you know, it's such an upsetting thing, but just, uh, a way to end the book that was better than any good with devastation. Pilgrimage. I walk to the fence with beauty before me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I walk to the fence with beauty behind me. Yit kadal kadash. I walk to the fence with beauty above me. Om mani hum. I walk to the fence with beauty below me. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit. I reach the fence surrounded by beauty, wail of wind, cry of hawk. I leave the fence surrounded by beauty, sigh of sagebrush, hush of stone. Beautiful. And then I'll read just a little bit uh, towards the end of the poem, which um, comprises the bulk of the text of Always Matt. So before the break, I ended with he promised to make the world a better place, a kinder place, a peaceful place for everyone. Well, that refrain is actually picked up again towards the end of the poem, so I'll start there. Matt promised to make the world a better place, a kinder place, a peaceful place for everyone. Matt wanted to make a difference. Now Matt's mom and dad make a difference. They travel all over the world to tell people's Matt story. They talk about Matt who was smart and funny and friendly and kind. They talk about Matt who played Abe Lincoln on History Day and loved mac and cheese and Clayton the cat. They talk about Matt hoping that people will soften their hearts and accept everybody as they are. He was a grandson, a son, and a brother to the world. He is Matthew Shepard. To his family, he will always be Matt.
1: So I hear in those two, that repeated phrase, they talk about Matt. And I wonder if that's part of the book's message as
2: well. Absolutely. You know, I think it's so imperative to talk about Matt, to keep saying his name, telling his story, Um, emphasizing that he was an actual person. He never intended upon being a headline. His family never intended um, upon doing this work. Um, And to just remember that this kind of tragedy can happen to anyone, is still happening to many people. And we should... I should say, I feel a responsibility and an obligation because I was put in this time. You know, I was invited months before this tragedy to come to the University of Wyoming and be their Gay Notes speaker for Gay Awareness Week. So that is how I became attached to this event. Um, and there has to be a reason that I was put in that place at that time. And I feel like it's my responsibility, obligation and honor to keep elevating his name and his story in hopes of creating a more peaceful world.
1: Absolutely. Um, and part of the the beauty of Always Matt too, and we've mentioned this earlier, but I wanna take a little time to talk about the illustrations. Um, it was a collaborative project. And I wonder if you can say more about the process of selecting and working with an illustrator, which for uh, a lot of writers is is, not a thing, (laughs) you know, we don't necessarily work with an illustrator and it's a a really fascinating uh, notion. Um, And maybe you could share a little bit about how you found this or
2: if your publisher found this and how that process worked for us. So this is the great mystery. You know, I also um, am a picture book writer as you know and many people, it's called a, a collaboration but many people don't realize that the author and the illustrator really don't work together in the way that one thinks two people work together, we're really kept separate. So my editor found the illustrator. I mean, we discussed it at length, of what we wanted. And then the editor broke the text down, my editor Howard Reeves, who was absolutely brilliant. He broke the text down, you know, across the pages and he and Brian and the art director worked together. Uh, One thing that is not typical, but what I asked my editor is if I could share my resource materials and primary sources with Brian because I thought he doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. I've done all this work. I have all these images, so I sent them to him, and he was very grateful and used a lot of them. Um, then I saw sketches, and then I saw almost finished artwork, and I was I was just so pleased. I mean, the book is so beautiful, the um, the color palette is so subdued it's so respectful um i i I will just admit this that there are um portraits of some key people in the book including me and i did ask my portrait to be done over several times (laughs) and um well you know i am kind of vain but putting that aside it was very interesting because the portraits show people you know, in a pretty serious way. And when I asked, you know, why I didn't think my portrait looked at me, um, the illustrator said, I couldn't find a picture of you where you weren't smiling and looking very happy. And so I said, well, I can provide you with that, which I did. And then he got the bottom half of, of my face right. But I did also, you know, ask the other people in the book, including um, Matt's parents, um, Moises Kaufman, who was the founder and director of the Tectonic Theater Project, who created uh, the Laramie Project, um, Michelle Houseway, who um, created the film I mentioned earlier. Matt Shepard is a friend of mine, and others. You know, if it would be okay with them if their portraits were drawn, and they all said yes.
1: Yes, they are. And they're wonderful. Um, uh, You do include a black and white photo
2: of Matthew
1: at the end, which is very striking and is a different texture in the book for the visual part of it. Um, yeah i think that is a surprise to people to hear that oh you don't work with the illustrator and you all just work it all out but in fact it's a it's a slightly separate process and um in this case your ability to provide him with the research i'm sure uh was wonderful um in terms of reading illustrations for instance i noticed at least one visual rhyme in the illustration sequence there's an image of matt's uh hand being held by a parent at his birth in the hospital. And then again, as he lays dying, there's someone holding his hand. It's clearly in the hospital. Are there other important things that um, we should know about reading the illustrations?
2: So, you know, what you just mentioned is an example of visual storytelling. And I never would have thought of that, but this is why it's so important for the writer to step back and let go. It's a real lesson in in Zen Buddhism and non-attachment and to really let the illustrator use his creative genius and elevate the text, not just draw what the text is saying, but to really add to it. And so, for example, there is a double spread that depicts kind of, I would say, a shrine that was, you know, Matt lay in a coma for six days. And so there were all kinds of vigils and events around that. People were held prayer circles. And so this page shows this double spread of there's a flyer that's about Matt. There's um, some roses. There's a lit candle. There's a teddy bear. And then this is while he's still in the coma. And then you turn the page. And he has died. And so the page is very dark. It's the same scene except the candle is no longer burning. It's been snuffed out and there's just a plume of smoke almost like Matt's spirit is ascending to heaven. And again, that is just such a, an amazing visual bit of storytelling.
1: Uh, and the colors move from warm tones in the first candles burning. He's still alive, heart is beating. and there's this warmth in the oranges and the the bright focal point of the candle um and then the following. Uh, facing page spread where we've moved to the cool darker blues the smoke um and you have to look closely to see that it is in fact the same tableau um and you know that speaks to our need to slow down and and savor these images and take this in i don't know about you but i frequently read books too quickly Even poetry sometimes too quickly. Looks short. I can blast through this. I need to read a whole bunch of books of poetry. And um, in reading this, collection, this long poem a second and third time, I'm realizing, oh, I need to, I need to see this and take this in. And I can certainly imagine a family, you know, experiencing it in that way too, with perhaps some children being only at the edge of reading fluently and parents seeing things in the stories and in the photos that the kids aren't necessarily seeing. And, um, Everyone's seeing even something different, perhaps, and and what can be noticed um, by different readers and different uh, viewers uh, of the work. Um, I'm going to change just a little bit because you touched on this, I I think, earlier in terms of the importance of you know, talking about Matt, saying his name, telling his story. And always Matt does document the outpouring of support from Matthew Shepard that occurred following his murder. And in many ways suggests we've come a long way. Um, but I'm kind of wondering, have we? Um, the climate seems to, again, be hostile in a way that it wasn't that, way even three years ago i don't quite know what's changed exactly but it it feels perhaps that we need this now even more than we did just three years ago um there's been terrible backlash against pride month events prohibitions against what young people can read um and of course horrific violence against trans um individuals what what is your sort of view on this the, the landscape right now
2: things are really scary now to me. The climate is is truly terrifying, I have to say. It felt really different when um, President Obama was in office. And in fact, President Obama signed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which was Mm -hmm. a huge deal. And in in fact, um, Judy Shepard often says that she was hopeful and thinking, oh, you know, maybe we don't really need this foundation anymore. Maybe I can go back to you know, living um, my quiet life in Wyoming. And then, you know, the administration changed drastically and all this hate was unleashed. And then the administration changed and we have President Biden who is a Democrat. And I think what's happening now is that the um, people who are so full of hate are really angry and you know, and desperate in a way and want to reclaim the country and take it to a truly frightening place. So I think that is a big part of it. People seem to feel like they have permission now to be as hateful as they wanna be, as violent as they wanna be, as aggressive as they want to be. And I think who really is suffering are young people, to be a young trans person now must be really terrifying. I know parents are really doing all they can to protect their children, including, you know, uprooting their whole lives and moving to a different state where there aren't such um, hateful anti-trans laws. I mean, you know, just imagine not feeling safe in your community, not feeling like you can do something as basic as go to the bathroom, not feel like it's safe to send your child to school. I mean, it's just, it's just horrendous. And, you know, in Judaism, which is my tradition, there is a concept called Tikkun Olam, which translates to repairing the world. And every Jew at birth is given that mission to repair the world in some way with the understanding that one cannot do it alone and the work will probably not be finished in one's lifetime, but that does not leave you off the hook. And so... My self-appointed assignment to, to you know, um, work to fulfill this assignment is to put books out into the world that will make the world a safer place for LGBTQ youth and families and allies and to keep talking about these issues because they're so important. I mean, it's really what's going on is life threatening in so many ways and we all have to work to stop it not just the LGBT community we need our allies absolutely
1: absolutely and so to wrap up here can you say a little bit more about um where you're going to be taking this book and um in the coming year as you kind of tour with it and visiting schools are there events you're particularly
2: excited about and and etc So I'm very happy to um, launch this book in Northampton, which is a town I lived in for many years. I'm still part of that community. It's about 10 miles from where I live now. And um, I'm doing an event with a good friend of mine named Peggy Gillespie, who wrote a book called Authentic Lives, celebrating trans people and their families. So we are going to do several events together, one in September in Northampton, one in October in South Hadley, And then a really important event that draws people from all over the country is the Matthew Shepard Foundation's Bear to Make a Difference Gala, which is on October 14th in Denver. You can find information on their website. It's their biggest fundraising event of the year. This year will be really exciting because it is the 25th anniversary of the creation of the foundation. So a lot of people... uh, who previously won the Matthew Shepard Making a Difference Award will be making an effort to attend, including me. And um, the people who are attending this year um, are very exciting. And um, then I hope to do an event in Boston with um, a wonderful writer named Federico Arabia, who wrote this incredible novel called Pedro and Daniel, a young adult novel, but really for readers of all ages. I highly recommend it. And then I will be reading uh, in Louisville, right? In Kentucky as part of the celebration of recently published books by our faculty. So there's a lot going on.
1: You do have a lot going on and I I imagine that Initial events will create new events and more conversations and awareness and ideally better community uh, for all of us. Uh, And we're certainly looking forward to having you here very soon. Um, Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today on the Think Humanities podcast and best wishes as you take this out into the world to repair it.
2: Thank you, Linnell.
0: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.